I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, the church Bibles are in the uh, trolleys at the end of the rows and um, the aisles. And it's page 845 in the church Bibles, page 845. We're going to open up at Mark chapter 9. And in a couple of moments, we'll be reading from verse 38 to the end of that chapter. Now, we split one of the stories in half. And uh, I want to... For those of you who were not here, I want to bring you up to speed on what had just happened and to remind you all that Jesus has been speaking to the issue of ambition in the human heart. All of us nurture and are conscious of desires for what we want to be and do with our lives, and the disciples were no different, and they were caught up in this great plan of God as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, conscious that he was destined for glory, aware that they were somehow bound up with his destiny. And so all of this imagination and longing and future hope was stirred up in their hearts in a way that was a mixture of good and bad. And this strange event takes place as Jesus is walking on the road with his disciples from one place to another. He begins to pour out his heart to them as he does on a few occasions in the Gospel of Mark and tell them of his calling and the fact that he's going to be crucified, the fact that he's going to be put to death on behalf of humankind, the fact that he's going to suffer and die and ultimately be raised from the dead. And as he is describing his future sacrifice for his people, at the same time there's this this strange, incongruous circumstance in which the disciples are having a little argument among themselves about who's the greatest. And they're like, there's all this kind of strange um, sort of argy-bargy going on about who's got the most gifts and abilities and who's going to be put in the greatest positions in the kingdom. And we look at it and we think this is so crass and so gauche. And then we also reflect and realize this stuff exists in all of our hearts, doesn't it? Now, they, when Jesus asked them the question, what were you talking about on the road? They stay silent for shame. They hardly want to confess to Jesus that what they're talking about is this, this ambition that they nurture in their hearts, that each of them is unsure and about who's the greatest among them. And what Jesus does at this moment in the conversation is he seeks to take that desire and then purify and refine it and also redirect it. And he does it in this way. He teaches them that the calling toward greatness within the kingdom of God is the calling toward service. That he would be the first, he says, must be the servant of all and the least of all. And then he, he, he calls a child and brings a child and puts a child on his knee. And he says, in effect, that the proof of this is how you treat children. He says, if you receive a child, you receive me. And what he's saying, in effect, is this. The real test of the authenticity of your advancement in humility within the kingdom of God, your ability to put yourself in a place of loneliness and, and of service, is how you treat those who are the lowest in society. And I was explaining to you how in ancient society the children were at the bottom. They weren't worshipped in the way that we worship children these days. It was the other way around. And Jesus says, this is it. This is how we test what's in your heart. How do you treat the lowest among you? And then John has this kind of 
pricked conscience, I suppose. And he, he blurts out this kind of confession to Jesus in, G, in, John 30, in verse 38, where it says this. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So John seems to be conscious that he had been motivated by a kind of competitiveness and one-upmanship and pride, that when he'd seen somebody else doing the things that they as the disciples were supposed to be doing, his first reaction was to shut it down. And he tells Jesus this. He tells him, look, he's obviously feeling struck to the heart to some degree how prideful he was in that moment. And Jesus, again, picks up this idea of ambition and starts to reform it. He says to them, he says, but Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So what Jesus in effect is doing is he's saying rather than entering into and participating in the spirit of competitiveness in which your desire is to get one over other people and to ascend through the hierarchies of of, um, human power, I suppose. He says the Christian and the disciple of Jesus is somebody with a massive generosity of spirit towards others. He's saying, assume the best of others. If they profess my name, you're on the same team. Give them a cup of water, and you won't lose your reward. He's he's wanting to encourage and to foster within disciples, rather than this self-serving, kingdom-building, prideful way that ambition can, can be manifested in our lives. He wants to reframe it and say, no, no, no. The characteristic of the kingdom is a humility of heart in which we're generous towards others, in which we want to see others lifted up and raised up and be accepting of others and loving towards others. And all of this, none of this will strike you as, as totally new, but of course it is absolutely convicting. And Jesus then sort of changes the subject somewhat. What I think he's doing is this, and we're going to read the last verses of this chapter. I think what he's doing is this, is exposing this fundamental problem when we pursue our ambitions. It's not that ambition in and of itself is wrong. Let me read you a couple of lines from an author called Douglas Wilson. He said, God created us for glory, and there is no way for us to find a switch that will turn that off. We were created for glory. It can't just be switched off. He says, we are inveterate glory seekers. And the thing that distinguishes a good man from a bad man is what he finds glorious. What Jesus now does when he's still trying to address the problem of these disciples' hearts is he exposes this fundamental contradiction. That so often in life when we're aiming to be something and do something great, we're more interested in the product of our lives than we are in the nature of our character. Even to the extent that you lay character and holiness down on, and, and forget it in the pursuit of greatness. It's never more obvious to me than in the example of so many Christian leaders who have been famous for the sadness of their failings. They may have done great things for God, but their whole lives were a denial of the gospel they preach. And what Jesus wants to do at this point is say, listen, It's not that ambition in and of itself is necessarily wrong. But he wants your eyes and your gaze to be focused on something altogether more important than what you accomplish with your life. 
We're inveterate glory seekers. You are destined to do something with the life that God has given you. Don't waste it. I completely believe that. But what is it that you should pursue with all vigor and passion and energy and with every fiber of your being in life? That's the question that we ought to ask. And I want to read to you these last verses of the chapter. Remember, Jesus has still got this child sat on his knee as a kind of object lesson. This is what Jesus says. From verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That last verse really sums up the, the essence of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you men are so preoccupied with your relative greatness and with your desire to do something with your life that it's causing friction in your relationships. He says, I want you to have peace with one another. And he says, instead, this is what's needed. Have salt in yourselves. What does he mean? He means above all, the disciple of Jesus Christ is somebody who places it as their primary concern in life, their supreme desire in life, far above achieving something for God, far above accomplishing something with the life and talents that God has given you, your chief desire is to pursue holiness. The tragedy, as I was saying, was that so often it's holiness which is sacrificed in the name of achievement. And Jesus wants to redirect our gaze and our focus And he does so in three ways. I want to talk to you about being holy for others, being holy for yourself, and then ultimately being holy for God. He says, first of all, be holy for others. This sobering sentence, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I want to ask a question with you. What do you think is the greatest cause for people falling away from God? Walking away from the faith? I don't think the answer is the devil. The Bible leads, as I read it in the New Testament, to the conclusion that the devil is constrained. It's not that he is not active, but that he is powerfully constrained by Christ. I don't think that it's necessarily the effects of the world in which we live. The world has always been hostile to the church of Jesus Christ. And very often, the more hostile it's become, the more the church has flourished. I don't want to underestimate the challenge of living a Christian life within a world such as ours. But I don't think the blame lies outside of the church for the reason that so many walk away from God and so many lose their faith. It's not even that the problem is necessarily inside us, that we are people who 
struggle with temptation. Of course, that's a massive reality. But when you read the New Testament and ask yourself the question, what is it that the New Testament authors are most concerned about as the main reason which will cause damage to other Christians and to the church as a whole? The answer is this. It's all of us and the effect that we have upon one another. It's the spiritual temperature of God's people. It's the influence that we experience from our family and our parents and other church members and so on. And I think as I read the New Testament, there are many ways in which Christians can be the chief cause of us, of, of causing damage to one another's faith. I want to listen for you quickly. One of them is when legalism creeps into the church. Legalism being that effort to attain righteousness before God by your record, as though you could outweigh your sin by your accomplishments for God. Jesus, of course, is a very harsh critic of this way of thinking and how it leads to harshness within Christianity, how it leads to a sharp edge, a razor edge, a kind of cutting edge within Christianity. It makes the Christian faith so unpalatable. And Jesus sought to tear this way of thinking down. You think about how he criticized the Pharisees. He says to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For neither, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The Bible shows us that when the Christian faith is motivated by law-keeping, then quickly we've lost the heart of what it means to believe in Jesus, and the church is on its way towards death. Paul says in one of his letters that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's not that we're not interested in what God's desire is for us, but when we're characterized by a legalistic mentality and a judgmentalism, the church begins to die. Along with that is a second thing, which is called hypocrisy. And Jesus mentioned it there in talking to the Pharisees, and it's a close cousin of legalism. The legalistic person is someone who is consumed with their outward appearance of living a right life when their heart is an absolute mess. A kind of cesspit of all kinds of unholy desires. And it's a characteristic of the legalistic person that they place so much emphasis upon their outer performance that they neglect heart transformation. And they look at others and compare their lives with others benchmarking themselves against others and neglect the fact that their heart could be far from God. And the Bible's very clear, and this is why Jesus says it to the Pharisees. He says, this is hypocrisy. It's play-acting. Brennan Manning, who wrote the book The Ragamuffin Gospel, famously said this. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Whether it's our legalism, whether it's hypocrisy, these things cause the faith of ourselves and of others to die. Then there's doctrinal drift, a third thing. 
When you ask the question, why is it that the church in Britain has been on experiencing demise for a century or more? There are all kinds of societal and historical answers you can give to that, but none of them matters as much as this one, that the church lost the gospel. We lost the fact that it's only by the work of God on our behalf through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross as a propitiation, as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins, that we can know life. There are many parts of the church where that message is an embarrassment. We want all the stuff about love and the idea that God is love, but we want none of the stuff about his anger against sin. And as the gospel was lost, the church began to wither and die. There is no other reason for the fact that so many churches across our nation are nearly empty this morning. That is the reason. It's not about a failure to accommodate to the modern age or to become culturally relevant. None of those things really matter at the end of the day if you have the gospel. And the church lost the gospel, gave it away, forgot it. And the church has been dying ever since. Then there's the problem of doubt. Now, I don't think that doubt in and of itself is a bad thing. I think a Christian who never experiences doubt is a vulnerable person because it's on the anvil of doubt that your certainty can be forged and your sense of what you know to be true. You test it with doubt and you emerge with a stronger conviction about the things you believe. But there is a kind of doubt which erodes your faith and the faith of others around you. And I think about the kind of doubt which is careless, which is indulgent. Sometimes it's motivated by a kind of false intellectualism just loving to ask questions all the time. Sometimes it's because you never really believed in the first place. That you're part of the church, or part of, of, of uh, you, you seem on the surface to be part of the church family, and yet inside you never really believed. Or maybe it's because behind all your intellectual doubts, there's a fact that at the heart of your life is a, a great compromise. That you've given way to some great temptation. And now you're finding justification for your lifestyle by pretending that you never really were sure about Jesus in the first place. Another thing we can talk about is just sheer rebellion. That not all who profess Jesus are truly believers in him. Christ said, I call you friends if you do what I command. He said, to know me, to be in a relationship with me, to be a believer in me is someone who walks in my instruction. And when that isn't true of you, then there is a doubt, there's a question about whether you really know Jesus in the first place. Now I'm listing all these things for you because I want you to understand what, the kinds of things that Christ has in mind here. When he says to the disciples that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and the actual word there means stumble. It means to stumble so as to lose your faith. What Jesus is highlighting and putting before our eyes is the incredible danger that we can be to one another when we treat the things of God lightly. That the greatest threat within the church is often one another, as well as the greatest blessing. Because the flip side to this, of course, is that we have an enormous responsibility as believers in Jesus to help one another know and understand the faith that we profess. 
And Jesus gives us the most heavy and stark warnings. And friends, it's important that we don't whitewash the kinds of things that Jesus says in this passage. It is a difficult passage. But he says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In other words, he's saying it would be better if you suffered capital punishment. The Romans did drown people than that you should cause someone else to lose their faith. Jesus wants the disciples to be shocked awake. They're busy talking about their little ambitions and the kingdoms that they want to build, and he's saying no. The most important thing among my people is they pursue holiness so that we do not cause one another to fall away. Be holy for others, he says. Then he adds this. He says, be holy, be holy for yourself. Look at these next verses, how striking his language is. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And he says the same about the foot, cut it off. He says the same about the eye, gouge it out. Now, why am I putting it like this, that what he's urging here is holiness for yourself, for your own sake? It's because he's talking about the internal battle that you experience, not just the influence you have on others, but the fact that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, know that there is a great battle for your soul. And that the consequences of what happens in that battle will affect you, ultimately. I think one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is that we forget to fight. That we give way to apathy. That kind of laziness in which there just isn't the desire or the motive to keep killing sin. Or we give way to despair because you feel like you've been fighting the same thing for so long. And you just give way and think, well, it's inevitable. I'm going to sin anyway, so I might as well just walk down this path. Or at some point, so often, people who once had a raging fire and passion for God, perhaps when they first became Christians, at some point they just begin to cruise. It's like the engine goes into neutral and take a nap at the wheel. And there's no real hunger to be killing sin, or sin will be killing you, as one of the Puritans said. Christ wants to shock you awake. This is the fight. The fight isn't out there about making your mark in the world. The fight is inside you. What he wants you to be confronted by is the absolute urgency of personal holiness. And how he does it is interesting. It gives these pretty shocking instructions to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. And I want to just stress this is not to be taken literally. I don't want to turn up next Sunday with a church of cripples having, having done the worst thing to themselves. And this has happened in church history. Oregon of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, uh, did actually castrate himself as a means of dealing with his own sexual lust. And shortly after, the Council of Nicaea, a council of bishops, outlawed that. Rightly so. So that for all time, we would not so interpret the teaching of Jesus. But what Jesus is calling for is this. Here's how one commentator puts it. He says, what Jesus is calling for is not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. 
This is not a word that we're used to in our theologically poor age. But the word mortification comes from those passages in the New Testament where Paul says, put to death the flesh. For example, in Romans 8, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. And so he seems to put the Christian in a context in which you understand that your life is one in which you are constantly at war. Now, the, the balance and the favor is on your side. I think the New Testament leads us to the understanding that we, there is no reason why you should remain in and be caught in sin. But it also leads us to a place in which we do not become complacent. Spiritual mortification, putting to death what the New Testament calls the deeds of the body or of the flesh. And this is how it works. This is what Jesus is teaching us. It begins here with self-examination. You look at your own life. I want to invite you to do it even now. What areas of life are you repeatedly walking into sin? Sometimes it's places you go, and Jesus talks about your feet, doesn't he? Sometimes it's stuff you do, and he, he, he describes the hand as a cause of sin. Sometimes it's the things you see and consequently think about, or the things that you nurture in your heart. And therefore, he speaks also of the eye. But in all Jesus' descriptions, the one thing he doesn't do is give you the excuse that the cause is something out there. He says, no, the cause is in you. It's in you. It's in your body. It's in me. You begin with self-examination, which you honestly ask yourself. And I believe that this is something that a Christian never stops doing. This isn't a once-a-year spiritual um, sort of MOT in which you just expose your life, whether through some kind of confession or some other practice to, to God's light and say, okay, is there anything that I've done that's displeasing to you this year, Lord? It's not that. Martin Luther famously said that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. And I think what he meant by that was it's a life in which you are constantly, happily, bringing your weakness and failings to God so that you can receive the grace of God and the strength of God to keep changing you begin with self-examination, and then you ask yourself the question, is it worth it? Now, we need to acknowledge, if we're going to have any hope of defeating the sins that we are tempted towards and drawn towards, we, if we're to have any hope, we have to acknowledge that there is gratification in sin. That the reason temptation is so powerful is because it is tempting. If there were not pleasure in it, if there were not delight in it, if there were not some joy in nurturing secret, ugly thoughts and desires or in acting upon them, then we wouldn't have any problems, would we? There is a draw. There is a benefit, in other words, to walking in sin. But the question is, is it really worth it? That's what he's asking you. And he does it by the strongest language that we've come across in the whole of Mark's gospel. When he says repeatedly in three different ways that the danger that you are in, if you nurture and cherish sin in your life, is the danger of ultimately being separated from God. 
He talks about this unquenchable fire. Some of you may think, well, is this a real danger for me? I think the New Testament leads us to the conclusion that if you're a person who professes belief in Jesus but is unwilling, unwilling to deal with the sins in your life, then there is a question about whether you know Jesus at all. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 5. He says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, which means strife with others or being at war with other people, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think that what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Galatians was that there is often the case that, within, that we, we engage in self-deception. Probably one of the most dangerous things that you can experience in the, in the Christian life is the illusion that you are saved when you are not. That those who truly have come to know Jesus, they're not going to be perfect, but they will have that longing, that impetus, that priority to continually be putting sin to death in their life. And if that isn't true of you, if you're content to nurture the image of being a Christian while all the while knowing that you're doing things that displease God and doing it in a determined way with no desire to change, no desire to lay this down at the foot of the cross. Paul is saying such a person does not know God. And you ask the question in light of what Jesus says, is it worth it? Is it worth cherishing the things that I want to keep doing? You know, keeping hold, as it were, of my feet and my hands and my eyes so that I can carry on doing this. If what I'm at risk of losing is a future with God and with Christ. And then Jesus says this, take action. He's saying that there is no cost too great, no action too inconvenient, that it isn't worth doing if what you are seeking to accomplish is eradicating sin from your life. I think that's how I understand what he's saying when he says, cut off your foot, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. He's saying it's worth it. It may be painful in the short run. The things you have to do, the decisions you have to make, For some of you, it can be as real and as earthy a decision as changing your job. Of getting rid of a device. Of giving away the money which is causing you to love it over God, to idolize what you can attain through it. To break off a relationship which you know is displeasing to God. To stop going to that place. To stop reading that literature. 
And yeah, there's a cost. The reason Jesus used such graphic imagery is because he wants his disciples to understand that there is pain involved if you want to follow him. And you must be willing. I want to add a caution here before we move on to the last thing. The Bible shows us that mere asceticism, which is self-denial, the cutting off of pleasures and opportunities in life, is not enough to change you. There are many people who practice an outwardly ascetic lifestyle, afflicting themselves with pain, sleeping on cold stone beds, denying themselves meals, waking up through the night, flogging themselves, doing all these kinds of things, but whose hearts were ugly. Asceticism isn't enough. You can't just change the circumstances of your life and expect your heart to change. The Bible tells us that it works the other way around. That Christ comes in by his miracle power, his supernatural power. He gives you a new heart. He gives you new desires. But of course, the consequence of having a new heart and new desires, which is the gospel, is that you will change the behavior or the circumstances of your life out there to match the desires of your heart. It begins inside and works out. You can't begin on the outside and work in. And if you're someone who says, listen, I'm not sure that my heart is truly for God. I don't know that I'm a Christian. I want to urge you, call out to him today. Finally, Jesus calls us to be holy for God. How he closes off this theme with his disciples who were wrestling with the ambitions of their heart. He says this in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, ultimately, I want to show you what this verse, these verses mean. But ultimately, what Jesus is calling his disciples to is this. Instead of making our own glory the pursuit of our lives, he's calling them to worship, which by definition is the pursuit of the glory of God. What he wants to do is he says, listen, you're glory seekers. You nurture these ambitions, these desires to be and do something with your life. He's saying direct all of that desire toward the pursuit of the glory of God. The ultimate purpose for life then, the ultimate ambition, is that life is not about you. Life is about offering yourself as an offering to God. The reason why I understand it that way is that the key is in the language. When Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire, he's talking to these Jewish men who knew that when they went to temple, the two dominant ingredients in the sacrificial system were fire and salt. A number of the sacrifices that they'd offer in temple were to be consumed by fire. And every single one of the sacrifices they offered in temple was to be covered with salt. Everything. So when Jesus says that we'll be salted with fire, the disciples know immediately that he's speaking about a sacrificial offering. But what is the offering that he's talking about here? He's not talking about the offering of the things that we bring to God. Our money or our time or the gifts that we give to him. 
He's talking about the sacrifice of your very life. The offering of yourself up to God in worship. I think about a verse like this one in Romans 12, where Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies or your, your lives, your beings, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, you ask the question, what does God want from you? What does he mean you to offer? And I think the answer is he wants you to offer yourself as a holy sacrifice to him. That's the Christian life. In the Bible, the word holiness has a double meaning. It means holiness from and holiness for. Holiness from means the cutting off from the things in life that contaminate us. And you know the experience of what contamination feels like. There are things that you participate in, things that you do that make you feel dirty. And holiness is the willingness to to separate yourself from those things. But the language of holiness also has a positive meaning. It means holy for. The picture of the sacrifice on the altar is a picture of what this means. The sacrifice is offered to God as a gift. The language of holiness always has this idea of being offered up to God as a gift. It means consecration. When Jesus says to them here, everyone will be salted with fire. Have no doubt in your mind that what he wants the disciples to pursue above all things is that their lives will be a holy offering to God. We know that salt speaks of holiness. Jesus uses the image here and elsewhere to speak of the power that salt has because it was in an age without refrigeration, it was the only thing you could use to stop your meat from putrefying and going moldy and stinking. Think about how salty your bacon is when you fry it in the morning. Salted as a curing action to stop it from going off. And fire also has this powerful image associated with it. There's a verse in Proverbs which says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. In other words, if you want a pure metal, put it in a hot place. And that's how God will deal with your life. When Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire, he's talking about the purifying effects of the fire of God to change you over time. You'll know that in the news there's been these amazing and surprising and shocking accounts of these great forest fires that have ravaged places in the west of the United States and across Australia. Do you know that forest fires are essential for life, even though they can lead to tragedy? Something like 4% of the land in, the, in the, the world is burned every year through natural or artificially started fires. And what it does is fire removes all the old, diseased, and dead wood in a forest and allows new growth to take place and ultimately leads to a more diverse ecosystem. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. Elsewhere, he speaks about pruning. When he says everyone will be salted by fire, what he's describing is God's priority for your life. 
You thought your life was about this, that, or the other thing. About achieving this, about attaining that success. You thought it was about experiencing fulfillment in this particular way. And what Jesus is underlining for us here is what God's desire is for his people. Through exposure to his fires, which is the purifying experience of his presence, or his working through the pains of life, or whatever it is that he does in us, ultimately he wants to refine you to make you like Jesus. What is it that you want to do in your life? I want to ask you the question again as I asked you last week. I think many of our desires are good and right. We are inveterate glory seekers. But all of those desires should be subsumed by and come under this great all-consuming passion for those who love Jesus, which is that your life must be holy. In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is talking to that church, a church so full of spiritual life, but also tainted by strange practices and people in the church who are engaged in bizarre sexual sins. Paul says to them, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He's saying that the Christian is somebody who understands that their life cannot be about themselves anymore. Because you don't belong to yourself. And the longing to pursue your own glory is completely inappropriate within the life of the Christian because your life is no longer about you. Now saying to you how powerfully liberating that is to know We can exit all of the rat race and all of the competitiveness and all of the ambition, the self-serving actions of the world. We can exit all of that and engage instead with what Jesus is saying here. Your life belongs to God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Fire and salt on the altar. The Word of God has power, the Bible tells us, to cut between the division of bone and marrow. In other words, it can get to the places of your heart that nothing else can reach. And that is a painful experience. And it's likely that even as you're listening to me speak, there'll be one of two reactions. Some of you will feel a resistance. And I want to remind you, this is not me, this is the Lord Jesus Christ 
But some of you will feel a grief, a longing, a desire to respond to God right now. And I want to encourage us to come to him in a way that is real. I want to encourage you to think about where it is that you've been diverting your energies in life. Have you been running headlong at the dreams that you have forged for yourself? Do you now need to recognize that Jesus wants to give you a new passion and desire in life to live for him and for his glory? And this will come down to very practical things about what your life looks like. If you've been nurturing sin in your heart, now is the time to deal with it. So I want to lead us in prayer. And we will take communion in a moment or two. And of course, as we take the bread and the wine... We need to be mindful of what Paul said. When you're not your own, you were bought with a price. This was the price, friends. It was the shed blood of Jesus, the broken body of Christ. And he calls us to renewal. He calls us to experience the liberty of life when it's lived for him. If you're not a Christian, it may be the case that you're just sick of the way you've been living. It may be the case that you're tired of feeling guilty. I want to offer you the opportunity to come to Jesus and say you're sorry and ask him for forgiveness. But that need doesn't end when you become a Christian. Every one of us needs to bow our hearts as we bow our heads and to say to Jesus the ways in which we want to repent and change. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you are holy. That when John saw you in your resurrected form, he fell on his face as though dead. He saw fire blazing in your eyes. And your face shining like a thousand suns. And how your gaze penetrates to the heart. And how you search us. Lord, we want to come to you acknowledging the heaviness of your words, acknowledging the seriousness of the things that you said to your disciples and your desire for us. recognize, Lord, that so often we take these things lightly. We shrug our shoulders. We avoid the confrontation. We avoid the grief of repentance. 
but then we don't change. And Lord, just as you summoned those men to a better aim, a better goal than one-upmanship, glory, success, and achievement when you called them to holiness. My prayer is, Lord, that you will foster within us a yearning to be like you. And a determination to do anything, anything necessary, even at great pain to ourselves, in order to be more like you. thank you for the balm of the gospel we thank you for the free offer of forgiveness we thank you that you love us we receive the bread and we receive the wine with deeply thankful hearts